0: This is Danielle Krissa from The Jealous Curator and this is episode 185 of Art for Your Ear. Well, I have to say I am a lot more relaxed this Saturday morning than I was last week and I hope you are too. Let's do a great big exhale. So today's episode was, again, recorded a few weeks ago. Yep, I was so organized that I actually banked a whole bunch of them. I'm sure that will probably change, though, and I'm going to go back to my usual seat-of-my-pants scheduling system. Anyway, this episode is so good, and I have been dying to share it with you. Bisa Butler is a New Jersey-based artist who, quote, paints with fabric. Yeah, she does. I wrote about her jaw-dropping, life-size portraits made entirely from bits of beautiful, colorful patterned fabric a few months ago and then immediately reached out and invited her onto the podcast. Thankfully, she said yes, but we had to wait a bit before we could actually talk because she'd been working night and day to get ready for a huge show at the Art Institute of Chicago. Well, that show opens next week, November 16th to be exact, so she was ready to chat with me in mid-October once she had everything done. I want to read you part of her artist statement because A... It's so powerful, and B, it's a perfect introduction to the next hour and a half. Here we go. In my work, I am telling the story, the African-American side of American life. History is the story of men and women, but the narrative is controlled by those who hold the pen. My community has been marginalized for hundreds of years. While we have been right beside our white counterparts, experiencing and creating history, our contributions and perspectives have been ignored, unrecorded, and lost. It is only a few years ago that it was acknowledged that the White House was built by slaves. Right there, in the seat of power of our country, African-Americans were creating and contributing while their names were lost to history. My subjects are African-Americans from ordinary walks of life, who may have sat for a formal family portrait, or may have been documented by a passing photographer. Like the builders of the White House, they have no names or captions to tell us who they were. (sighs) So good. So as usual, we are gonna start from childhood and work our way up to the art Bisa is making today. Work that tells the story of people history ignored. I'd read her statement before we talked, but honestly, I didn't know much about her outside of her artwork. Well, we quickly figured out that we're the same age, so we graduated from high school the same year, grad 91 rules, and as adults, we've both moved back to our old hometowns. Because of all of these weird similarities, we just sort of uh, started chatting as soon as the Zoom call picked up, but then I remembered that we were actually supposed to be doing a podcast, so I figured I'd better hit record. So, how about I stop talking and we hop in mid-conversation to this episode with the fabulous Bisa Butler. Ready? Here we go. So let's um, let's just jump right in. Let's start at the beginning. We'll start at 1973. So I want to know, um, yeah, where you grew up and if you were artsy back then. Were you sewing or were you drawing or what were you like when you were a kid?
1: Yeah, all of those things. I was super artsy. Um, I was born in Orange, New Jersey, so I haven't gone that far. Although we did live in Plainfield when I was really little. And Plainfield had this school. My mom was, um, I said my mom was really like a forward thinker. You know, she was like the vegan before that was a name. I think everybody was considered a vegetarian at the time. But she was already like well advanced into veganism and yoga. I remember thinking like all of that was so weird. And I used to get so embarrassed when my mother was like pulling us into her things and we wanted to do ordinary things like our friends. Like I remember my friends talking about dinner. Remember those shake and bake commercials? Yeah. They'd be like, right, we had shake and bake. And I'd be like, oh, we had like falafel and couscous. Like I'd be <laughs> like so. And my mom grew up in Morocco, so wow her dad her dad worked for the foreign service so and then my father's from Ghana, so my home dinners were very different from theirs, and that used to always upset me. but I was super creative from the start in the seventies. I went to this hippie 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 I don't even know ultra hippie school <laughs> called first of all, it was called Children of the Rainbow, just to like. Just to
0: categorize it as a true history. Yeah, like
1: so what can you imagine? (laughs) It was in a big Victorian house. They had all grades, I think it was like from four to eighth grade, four years old to eighth grade, but they weren't grades. It was like there were rooms. And if you felt like reading, you go to the reading room. You could spend an hour there or the whole day there. It was up to the child. Wow. There's a there's a teacher in that room. Um, I don't know what kind of certification they got. <laughs> Somebody asked me was the school Montessori. I was like, "Oh, this is well beyond Montessori, my friend." <laughs> this is. I deep, guess
0: nobody would make fun of deep. your couscous dinners there, though.
1: <laughs> no, no, that was before <laughs> when we were really little. Before I went to public school, I didn't even know that everybody around us was very alternative lifestyle. That we had like mixed race couples which were totally fine. Like I grew up with that. We had gay couples married with children. I didn't have, I was too young to know that this was not the norm and that this wasn't acceptable. And the school was run by a white couple, a little bit older who had like children who were like 17 and 18. But I don't know where they got their philosophy from, but they were like determined. You can even tell by the name, like that they wanted this multiracial kind of like utopia that's and that it was wild I remember they had like at one point I don't know what the heck was going on I don't know if they were um like undocumented but I remember that they were Native Americans in the attic this house was huge This is like 14 bedrooms so we knew that we weren't supposed to go up in the attic that week because the Native Americans were sleeping up there they were sleeping in the daytime so i don't know what mess and and it are just so there was just no regulation because of course we went up there and i remember tiptoeing around these people wrapped in their blankets God. what was happening i don't
0: <laughs> know this needs on? to be a novel or a movie or something maybe a netflix special because
1: <laughs> <laughs> so just to make that short the 70s let's just edit that my parents ended up divorcing and my father um, it's more like the straight and narrow type. He's He was a college president for 39 years and he got instated in 1979. So he bought a big house in South Orange and he was like, it's my turn. I think they worked at it. It wasn't like, it was, I mean, they had a good like relationship, but it was like, I have this stability, I have a big house, you know, good school district. I'm going to take the kids because we had been at Rainbow And then we went to this other school, Chad School, which was like a Afrocentric, African-centered school. And my father just wasn't going for it. He was raised in Ghana. And at the time when he was there, that was during colonization. So they used to like sing Hail to the Queen
0: in the morning,
1: like little African children. It's so crazy. Queen, uh, was it Victoria? But the queen was, they considered her the queen of Ghana, even though she was yeah, the queen of England. And so he grew up in military school, you know, British school. So he just wasn't going for all of this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and then we moved to like South Orange and we were in public school ever since.
0: And so what grade was that that you switched to public school?
1: That was third grade. Third grade. So I was that a that bit of a shocker? Really, oh, that was so traumatic for me. You're like, I where's the reading know. room? Where are the Native Americans right, right. like <laughs> and then at the Chad school, we used to say the the principles of Kwanzaa instead of the Pledge of Allegiance, and we would sing the black national anthem in the morning, so then i'm now I'm in um you know regular like I would say like white bread, you know suburban u s a and I'm like, what is going on?" <laughs> The kids were, I mean, kids were just kids, but I just remember that I didn't know any of the songs. You remember in the 80s, we had to sing a different song every morning? Did you guys do like, God bless America? I'm Canadian. We had
0: to sing, Oh, Canada.
1: Oh, that's right. Yeah. Oh, that's right. (laughs) You did say that. Well, I didn't know the song. I had to learn the pledge. And I think the first week I was just so quiet because I was just trying to like figure it out. And then I started making friends and kids, you know, kids assimilate very quickly. Yeah. Yeah, I remember by the second week. My sister is my twin for a month every year. So she's 11 months older than me. Oh my gosh. And then I have a stepsister who is um, seven years older than me. And my brother, my stepsister and my brother were only um, a day apart. Oh, wow. But my brother passed away, but they are, they, so they were like much older than us and me Doing and my sister were the youngest. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> so at
0: least you had your sister at the school. Yes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. was my brother's rep, oh, my brother's reputation was so notorious. I remember people <laughs> being like, Yamba, Yamba is my maiden name. So they'd be like, they'd look at the role and they'd be like, Yamba, Yamba. Zachary's little sister? And their faces were all like... <laughs> Uh-oh. I'm like, no, we're different. We're totally different. <laughs> really. <laughs> but it helped, you know, because then kids didn't mess with me because yeah. I was Zach, Zach's little sister. But the teachers were always like really leery like that first few days.
0: Oh, yeah, that, that happens. So when you switched from the Land of Rainbows to regular school... Um, yeah. Did you find, like, was it a whole lot less creative? Like, were you, did it stifle that in you at all? Or were you still just doing your thing? Hmm.
1: I think that it was all so new that it still remained somewhat interesting for me. But I definitely remember being behind in school academically because at Rainbow that they, um, their philosophy was that by eighth grade, you know, all kids would be on the same level. So you're going to catch up at your time, but it was out of order from what they wanted us to know in public school. Right. So I remember I still loved art class and this and that, but I was very, very quiet and probably so much more withdrawn than I was at Rainbow and at Chad School because I hadn't grown up in that environment. I was like a foreign kid, even though I was still in the States.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Such a different experience. And so um, as you're like, when you would go home, so you go home to your lovely house in South Orange, were you making stuff or was your, your military school dad more like, okay, homework
1: time? (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, he definitely, he stressed uh, academics, but he always supported I was the youngest in the house so my brother was so wild for the night that my father like treated me and my sister like basically whatever we wanted because we were well behaved. Right. So I mean and what I wanted was like dolls. I love Barbies, baby dolls and then crayons and paint and markers. So he would like we had that at our disposal and he was supportive. And my mom used to come over every day. And she would take us to museums and things like that. So wow. dance, dance recitals and performances. So they were very supportive of me. They always knew that I was like a little different um, than my siblings. Like even from the start, I remember I drew like all over the walls in my room. This is really young. Like My sister reminded me of that. I remember that they had like huge heads <laughs> and then just arms and legs. You know, that stage of development was just like huge. They're sort of features, but they're like half the face is the eye, the eye. And I drew them all across the wall of my room as big as I could, which at the time, maybe I was only like three feet high myself. But my mom let me keep them there because I told her that those are my guardian angels. Oh, so.
0: my goodness.
1: so I feel like I was really supported very early on just to like let her do her thing she's not hurting anybody so that's amazing
0: and did I read that your mom did did your mom make quilts
1: no um my mom sewed though constantly because she grew up in Morocco uh, my grandfather was um he was an emissary in the 50s and the US government, basically, Morocco was getting ready to go to become an independent country. And um, they were going to get their independence from France. And the US wanted you know, their interests to still be upheld in the region. And they thought, what better way to get this Black man? My grandfather was from Nova Scotia, but he spoke French. Oh. So they were like a Black man. A person of color, he speaks French. they had ten kids, so he he fit more with the 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 um the salt it was a sultan at the time, but then they see he switched over to be a king when when they went independent they they the country said that he was going to be the king of Morocco because they wanted to be more modern. <laughs> but having this black man intercede on behalf of the United States, it fit more. You know, they actually liked him and they felt like uh, the Moroccan royalty felt like they could understand him. So my mother and her siblings are there growing up in the 50s they have all these events to go to, but it wasn't like my grandfather was very wealthy. I mean, they provide you with a home and a car and and whatever trappings of normal middle class life in Morocco were like you have a, a maid and a driver, but they weren't actually rich people. So my mother and my grandmother, all the siblings, there were seven girls and three boys, but the girls all had to sew. So if you wanted a fancy dress to wear to the embassy and you wanted to be Christian Dior, you know, then they would like get the pattern and they would make it. Wow! So I grew up seeing the pictures of their life and, and the fabrics like the silks and the lace and the brocade. And so I still use those in my artwork today because they were dressmakers.
0: Wow, that is so cool. Did you get l- lots of fabric from your mom? Like Tons. Yeah.
1: Tons. When I first started quilting, I was still in grad school and I was like, mommy, I need fabric. So she just like opened up the vault and my grandmother too. <laughs> they were just like, everybody who sews has like storage of fabric. So they just gave me tons of fabric. So I had like expensive gabardine because they had made wool suits and all these beautiful dressmakers fabrics. And I was like, well, I'll just use these in my quilts. I didn't know the rules of quilting that I was supposed to be using cotton. And it was supposed to be like certain quality. I didn't know any of that. Which actually ended up helping me. Yeah, that's
0: that's the best when you don't know the rules because then you don't have to stick to anything. Okay, let's reverse. So you're in high school. It's not the rainbow anymore. You're so. Did you when you were in high school? I love that so much. When I was in grade six, I, me and my girlfriends had a club called the Rainbow Girls. Oh. My if goodness. there had been a school that we could have gone to, I would have been yes. all about it.
1: Oh my god! Yeah, we would yes. get together
0: after school and discuss rainbows, unicorns, um, scratch and sniff <laughs> stickers. It's so, Amy,
1: I know. Right? <laughs> I love it, I Lisa Frank in all of yes. her glory. Yes. yes,
0: I've been trying to incorporate some of that into my work lately, and I'll tell yes. you, it's like a time machine, and it makes me so happy. I just put some scratch me and too. sniffs onto a piece that I did, and when you scratch it and smell it, yeah, it is instant transport to like 1984.
1: Oh, I love it! I'm so excited by that. Those scratch and sniffs were pure joy. I know. <laughs>
0: I know, great, right. and it smells like cola. Okay, does. I love it. I nailed that spelling test, and I got the cola sticker. um, All right. Anyway, so yes, Rainbow. So you're in high school. Are you thinking that you're going to go to art school after you graduate? Was that your plan?
1: It was. Well, no, I knew I wanted to go to Howard University though, which was is a historically black college in DC. Yeah. Um, like Kamala Harris went there, and it's it's it, it. I chose Howard because I had been in you know Columbia High School. This is suburban, you know. I think maybe the black population was maybe twenty percent, and that's maybe <laughs> I don't know what the numbers were. But I, a friend of mine went to Howard. We went to her homecoming, and Howard's homecoming is like notorious for being the most fun homecoming for black kids, and they call it the Mecca because kids come there from, they do a lot of, um, there's a lot of foreign national students. So a lot of kids from Africa and the Caribbean and and there's a big Ethiopian population in Washington, DC. And then there's all the American kids from coming from all over. Har- uh, Howard was considered like the black Harvard at the time. And even now it's one of the top uh, black colleges in the country. I think only second to maybe Morehouse. I think it's Morehouse and then Howard and then comes Spelman. Mm -hmm. But Howard was the place to be and it was so much fun. I went for homecoming and I was like, I'm going there. (laughs) And my father being the college president, all his buddies are college presidents. And I was a good student and I, I had offers for so many scholarships at other schools and I just like refused. I was like, I'm not going. And and that was that youngest child thing, too. I was like, I'm not. Like, like he couldn't afford to me. But at the time, I was like, I'm not going. I'm only going to Howard. And <laughs> that's where I ended up going. I saw a whole bunch of good-looking guys there at home gun. Yeah, I was going to say.
0: <laughs> you
1: know? The music was. And Howard was so much fun that, like, at parties, you could turn around. And this happened. Like, Tupac was, like, too two people down he's like flirting with me and my friend super cute super cute guy also I must say (laughs) in real life (laughs) as in pictures (laughs) like Biggie Smalls is walking across campus because Sean Combs went to Howard too so he would bring like his new artist his new artist was Biggie who was like huge like I don't know how tall he was but it looked like he was like six two six four you know, huge 300 pound plus. So there's Biggie. Like, it was just, it was the Mecca. It was like, where all culture and happening things were going to be. And I was like, I'm going there.
0: That's awesome. That's amazing. And was the whole, the four years, was it just everything that you wanted it to, well, Tupac's flirting with you. So I guess that's pretty good.
1: Oh, that was, that was just so good. (laughs) Um and I ended up meeting my husband there. So oh. he was like a popular DJ on campus. And I had a full ride to go study architecture. Because my dad still was like, Okay, you want to do art? Let's let's get you an architecture. You do that. It's stable. Yes. You'll have a job, <laughs> benefits, money, steady paycheck. But I stayed the year in architecture and I just absolutely hated it. I think it just the minimum, so controlled,
0: like, so yeah.
1: Ugh, Talk it about was rules. Awful. Mm-hmm. It was so bad. I remember doing this project where the final presentation for some class, you had to design this building, and everybody was doing like big whiteboards with pencil and black ink. So I decided to do the opposite I did a blackboard with white ink. And I've been working on this for like months. Then when I presented it, I remember that the professors were saying, oh, I don't like it. It looks, it looks dirty. It looks dirty, the white on black. So they gave me a B and I've always been very driven. So I was like effing outraged, like a (laughs) B, are you serious? (laughs) Do you see this? Like to me, the innovation should have, should have earned a higher mark but they actually took marks off because it wasn't the standard and i remember that day i was so upset i went to english class and i had this professor which is another good thing about um, black colleges because the professors see you it was a black woman professor who like said to me she was like what's what's wrong with you today like you're not yourself are you okay and I, had, I started crying and I told her what happened. And she said, just wait a minute. And she took her, she locked up her office and she walked me across campus to the School of Fine Arts and then introduced me to the Dean who was her friend and was like, this young lady wants to be here.
0: Oh my God, that's gonna make me cry. Yeah. That is amazing. Are you still, does she know what you're doing now?
1: No. You know what? I just thought of her like a couple of days ago, but I need to look her up. Her name is Dorothy Shuttlesworth. I'm going to look her up and see where is Dr. Shuttlesworth. (laughs) Does she know like what I'm doing now?
0: That can be the second book in the series. First, we'll start off with the rainbow school. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this Where in the world is Dr. Shuttlesworth? Um, yeah, that's been, amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, I had a really, well, not as wonderfully dramatic as that. But when I was at art school, I had a terrible time in fine art. And mm-hmm. I had um a prof who never liked me. I was a painting major. And he was mm-hmm. the, you know, the head of the painting department. And mm-hmm. five weeks before I graduated, he told me I should, quote, never paint again. why do they
1: do that
0: i don't know and that happens
1: too often i know
0: so often but i had another teacher who was my drawing teacher named elspeth pratt and she was actually a sculptor but she was the drawing teacher but she let you do whatever Mm -hmm. you wanted in drawing like i painted on found objects in my drawing class um and so same thing um i went i had her class next and i was you know fighting not to cry And she's like, what's going on? Because she actually saw the students in front of her, which I appreciate so much.
1: And um,
0: she was amazing. And so I ended up writing her a letter about maybe 10 years ago um, Mm -hmm. and just said, you probably won't remember me because there were thousands of us that went through but you changed the direction of my life and um, wow. I dropped it off at the university I knew she was teaching at now and uh, yes. she got it apparently and then I wrote a book a few years ago called a big important yeah. art book now with women and yeah. I got to interview her and she's in that book.
1: Oh wow. So it what felt an amazing payback. Yeah, it I just felt like that. this amazing
0: full <laughs> circle moment. So you have to go find your yeah. your professor.
1: Because if she knew what you were
0: doing now, like, I so amazing. So you, switched, yes. so you switched into fine arts, I take it?
1: I went into fine arts, and the dean of fine arts was Jeff Donaldson, who yes, started I mean, AfroCobra. Yeah, so um, Howard's fine arts department, I mean, originally Howard University was set up to so that black students could go to college cuz the united states was segregated black black people could not go to um primarily white institutions they were barred so that it was set up during the segregation era by a white um i think he was a former military officer union uh union uh officer during the confederacy and he had this notion that he wanted to help black people so he started the school which was Howard and then and the, so in the 40s and the 50s or let's say even like the 30s like Harlem Renaissance time the idea was for black artists and black students black people to assimilate into mainstream culture and to become very like savoir faire and urbane you know go to Paris you know study under the Beaux-Arts arch tradition and then when you produce your own artwork um, it should make it should be positive and black people should feel supported when they look at your artwork but your artwork the main goal was to try to fit into the european standard Mm. so then here comes the 60s you know and it's like black power time they weren't having it and jeff donson was part of that group they were like no we want a whole separate African." African-influenced Black curriculum, not influenced by European traditions, um, and not entirely African either. We want a new thing that's Black American, it's young, it's hip, it's strong. So it was like the physical, artistic embodiment of the Black power movement in art. Wow. And Jeff Donaldson founded that group, which was Cobra the African commune of bad and relevant artists and (laughs) yeah like how cool were they and they were all in their 20s in Chicago and then they all like become college professors and then he became the dean I don't even think he was 30 years old when he was instated as the dean wow so they threw out the old curriculum and Actually, my husband's father was at Howard that during that time in sixty eight they did take over the a building and they they demanded that like the they had never had a black president at the college, which was wow, what is happening yeah. like they didn't have african American studies as a class um you would think like, oh, wouldn't it make sense it's a black college no, because they were still. <laughs> teaching on the same traditions that when the school opened in in like 1870 you know it was still like a, a patriarchal thing like we're going to help you black people assimilate into our culture yeah, we're going to help you be so, white <laughs> right so yeah. why should you study African history and they came through so by the time I got there in the 90s it was fully established you know that all of the students would, I think every kid, even now at Howard, they have to take this class called Blacks in the Arts, where they learn about African-American contributions in art, and they just used to impress upon us all the time. You have a responsibility to help your people. Black people in this country, even now, are still not financially, um, their finances are not equal to white Americans, the educational opportunities are not equal to white Americans. Their exposure to art and culture are not equal to that of white Americans. So they were saying like, you must do your part. When people look at your artwork, they should feel that they've learned something about themselves. They should feel good about themselves. They should see themselves reflected like they should see full lips and wide nose, kinky hair. Mm -hmm. They should see the colors, like the colors that I'm wearing, but they should see the colors of the continent in their artwork or places of, in tropical places, you know, the floral and the fauna are bright and intense. And the fabric that people wear reflect that. So the Afrikova was saying, we want to take that. And then we also want to combine it with our American sensibilities. And they call that the Kool-Aid colors. And we know Kool-Aid, you know, the packets of like, you, you're, you're oh, Kool-Aid. yeah, we've
0: got Kool-Aid. Okay. Kool-Aid Kool-Aid tastes great. Kool-Aid Kool-Aid, can't wait.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but that intense red powder, yeah. you know, and that hot pink and bright blue. And there's something that's really interesting about that, too, because they felt like art should not just be in the galleries and museums. It should be for the people. So if our people are not going in museums and galleries, then the art needs to be in murals. It needs mm-hmm. to be in low-priced posters that you sell um, at art fairs. I mean, like, low price at that time might have been 10 cents. Um, and I thought about that the other day, just that, you know, art on Instagram and Facebook and, and Twitter and all social media, it's sort of like going back to that, that art is for everybody. Yes. You don't have to go into some institution that you might feel. As as a black person, you might feel uncomfortable there. You know, walking into a gallery where no one looks like you, none of the artwork looks like you. The only people who look like you are the security guards, and they're friendly and speak. But you know, from the start, you might get somebody saying like, "Can I help you?" You know, uh, as in, "What are you doing here?" So, I I feel like they press that upon us, Mm -hmm. and it's just soaked in because that was like, you, you know, your grades were dependent on these people who are saying, this is what your responsibility is. And that's what we all took from that. I mean, I don't know if all of my classmates are working in that way, but I know I, I still yeah, You
0: certainly heard, heard it and listen. They should, that should be, that um, art class should be in every university. Like, you know, to understand yeah. that because, um, and to see what came before, I remember like, uh, from a women, a woman's standpoint, being in art history mm-hmm. classes, so excited to be in art history. And mm-hmm. like uh, only a few weeks in, we hadn't even seen one woman yet. And I remember being like, but That's I awesome. want to be an artist when I grow up. Like did nobody right. that was like me come before me and like, same with, you know, black artists and not only black artists, but black female artists like if that's what you want to be where are they like show me what came before and surely something came before and I asked my art history prof in the moment about it and he said yeah um you know yes of course there were thousands of women making art for years and years and years but quote they weren't considered worthy enough to document and How awful. I know, right. It's just like, that's why I wrote that book because I was like, ah, like okay. <laughs> yes. And it's still that, like, it's still like the percentage in galleries yeah. and whatever. And, uh, and sure. of course you saw the news the other day about Simone Lee, about, um, representing. Yes. Yes, me so. and my
1: friends, we're, we're all going, like we got on a, a group chat and we're like, we're going, we're going,
0: Yeah, we're going, we're going to Italy. Yeah. So, I'm going, yeah. I'm going to be there that year too. I like, I cannot yeah. wait. So exciting. But yeah. I wrote a post about it yesterday and it's like, well yeah about damn time like when you hear that stuff that it's like what the first Mm -hmm. one it's 2020 Mm -hmm. like what is even happening and And I think that the more
1: seven years yeah
0: yeah the more curriculum (laughs) that's in more schools about Mm -hmm. minorities or women or whatever like everyone should know the full story not just the colonial yeah yeah it's so I
1: I mean it's I 100% agree with that it's like you can't none of us can know the true history of our country or the world if we're leaving out wide swaths of people. So by yeah. saying like, okay, you're going to learn about black history during black history month, but all the rest of the month yeah. that history is actually deliberately cut out and left out of the story. So you're not really getting it. Yeah, Like just now, I think it's just this past year where it's really come out that the white house was built by slaves. The Washington Monument was built by slaves, like that's an important aspect of understanding what in what our country really is. Yeah. And how it was founded. So how can we go for a visit to the White House, you know, or go to the Oval Office? And you and you feel probably like, wow, not too many black people around here, but I'm sure like I guess the butlers, I, I really, you know. I don't even know what's happening at the moment, Yeah, but to know that your people built it would make those people visiting feel a lot different Yeah, about what they're seeing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I don't know. It's just, um, it feels like, I hope there's a shift. Like it feels like the world is in flux right now. And I hope mm-hmm. it means that it's a step like that we're moving forward, you know, the same things happening mm-hmm. in Canada. Like when you were talking about. Um, Um, when Howard first started and like trying to make black people white, essentially Mm -hmm. the same thing happened Mm -hmm. in Canada with the indigenous Mm -hmm. people here. Like there, there Mm -hmm. were these residential schools and the children Mm -hmm. were basically kidnapped and forced to go to these residential schools because they were going to make them refined. They were going to help them be part of this like new land. And it's like, hold up. This was already their land. Right. No. And like the last one closed it was like the early nineties or something. Like it was horrible, crazy, not that long ago. And again, that is all taken. Like I didn't learn that in high school. That is all removed from the Canadian history books. They don't tell you that stuff. My son is now in school and like they, Mm -hmm. when he was in maybe the fourth grade Mm -hmm. that's in their curriculum now. So he knew he would come home and tell me about it. I was so embarrassed that I didn't know you know, and so at least things are, yeah, yeah, and so I, I hope that the world is realizing that all the stories need to be told.
1: I hope so. Yeah. You know, I, I try to really think positively, but I can't help but look at stats, um, because since I work in my dining room, we're thinking about moving and getting a bigger space, and, um, I'm meeting things that are saying, uh, that home ownership for black Americans is less than it was 40 years ago. So what? like, yeah, like oh the redlining and like if I go for a mortgage, giving me a higher interest rate than they would give. And then also when we sell our house, um, having the assessment be lower. There was a woman just last week, it was in the times, but her condo was evaluated $60,000 less than her neighbor's condo so what she did was she went to a different agency you know everything's online now she didn't put her race in it and then um then her condo I think originally told her 220 and I think she ended up selling it for um something like 310 oh my word with with taking her race off the application but it's just I mean the state of Black America, if you start looking at financial documents, like how are we actually doing and what's the college graduation rate and um, things, I'm not gonna say that there is always a positive, positive side to everything. And we are very resilient and we're still here and we're still trying, but when there are you know policies put in place to hold us back it does indeed like hold people back
0: yeah that's the systemic part that yeah oh i know you know my my instinct is to like never ever watch the news ever (laughs) <laughs> you know but it's like you can't. Like that's that's why I'm so honored to like be able to have these conversations and you know on a platform yeah. where lots of people are listening. And I'm so happy to have you on and have you like you know telling me all this stuff because again, as like a white lady in Canada, I don't know a lot of this stuff. You know, which well, a lot of people probably don't.
1: I mean, black people too. It's like we're constantly having to educate ourselves. You know, from scratch. Thank God the internet. Does exist, you know because there are so many different outlets now that we can get news besides like network news right um and and it is difficult, but there are a lot of people who are doing things to enact change and I always feel like I can never get too morose or feeling like oh I can't I can't because I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for people who had a lot more grit and a lot more staying power than I do I mean right. even as close as my grandfather and i think about taking my 10 kids and going to morocco i don't know how i would feel how i would feel about moving to morocco now not saying that it's not a beautiful place and advanced but just the culture change of moving yeah. to a muslim country um and him coming from nova scotia and my grandmother from new orleans like it's not like their families were these international people. No. So I always like think about that. It reminds me every time, like, no, you have no right to say this is hard because you don't know hard.
0: Yeah. Okay, let's get back to talking about your amazing art, which actually feeds into all of this. Mm -hmm. So, okay, so you're a painting, you're a painting major.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, What were you painting? People? I mostly... Yeah, people. I was really always interested in portraiture primarily. And then the painting curriculum, it was pretty standard at the time. You know, we had models come for class and we had to sketch them and draw them. But my paintings were just not, they just lacked the depth. You know, I was using the layers like they told me and use the glazes and build it up and do the underpainting, but. It just wasn't getting there. And I remember like asking my other professor, Al Smith, I was like, what is it that I'm missing? Because I followed directions. I was used to, like, I said, like, I want the A, you know, I was right. like, I wanna, have, I wanna be the best. But my paintings were not the best. They were just, if he said, paint um, somebody in a relaxed pose looking with the window beside them so you get the light like i just followed the rules but it was there was no soul and nothing interesting happening so al smith was like you know what i'm gonna visit you in your studio and i'm gonna see your setup and i'm gonna try to help you because he he really had um he just really cared about his students and he could tell that i was just like frustrated because i had a friend who would be painting next to me And at the end of a six-hour studio course with a model in the room, she would turn hers around. And hers was amazing. And mine was just, like, boring as all hell. And my face, I guess he could just see it. I was just like, I'm just not, I'm not getting this. And I'm a painting major. Mm -hmm. And he came to my house at school. We lived off campus by that time. And I had, like, I remember I had on, like, a funky T-shirt that I had, like, stitched some, like, African fabric on, I had on a lace skirt, I had my Doc Martens on which were all like splattered with paint and he was like, you have all this fabric and all these textures, why don't you put that in your artwork? And so he told me like, look at the work of Romare Bearden, Um, look at the collages and do that. So I did that, I started gluing and cutting fabric and putting it on canvas. And that was like, that was a big shift for me because I finally could like see something happening. um, And you're getting yourself in there. Yeah, Yeah. my own personality was in the work. But of course I was a painting major. So that was, I almost didn't graduate because (laughs) when I had to present my final works, they were at least 60% fabric on canvas. And the faculty, half of them were like, well, you're not painting. So we're not sure if you have earned your degree. And then the other half, I think it was six people in the room, six from the other three were like, she's painting with fabric. So she is painting. And they actually told me to leave. They usually tell you right then and there, like, I think you got a score. It was like AP, you get a score from like one to five but you're going to graduate you just they're just giving you your score and i remember them telling me you need to leave and we'll call you later when we decide oh my god yeah Are you just so stressed it was so stressed and i was pregnant my <gasps> i met my husband at Howard, too. Oh, so i was okay. pre- pregnant with our first child i think it was about, i wasn't showing it so they didn't know but i was just like i went home that day it was may and I was like, I was doing September. I was like, well, if I don't graduate, you know, when you're pregnant, your mind is on other things. Yeah. So I was like, if I don't graduate, I'm not coming back in September. And I don't know if I can come back until the following September. And I was like, just so like, I wasn't angry. I just think I was over it. I was Yeah. Like, just done. It's going to be what it is yeah. at this point. Well, when you're pregnant, you're kind remember. of
0: working on a bigger project.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: So what happened? Yeah. Did they call, call you that day? Or how long did you
1: wait? They must've called that day, but I have no memory in that. I think that's how much I had like divorced myself from the entire situation. I was like, it is what it is. Like, cause we're, we're, we're all graduating. We're, we're leaving the house. Everybody's going back home to Jersey or wherever they're going. Um, me and John, our wedding, we got, we graduated on May 15th and we got, married May 20th so the wedding was already being planned I was like I don't care about this right now right so so I don't remember the phone call but I did graduate so
0: wow that's great you know it's so funny I was doing the same thing I was sewing on my like there was very little paint and I was cutting pieces of the canvas Mm -hmm. away and then sewing it back on and I was told by a girl in my class you know that there's always that one person in your class with all yes. of the opinions, yes. and she she said that I was bringing down all female artists by cutting wow. and sewing and saying that women can only work as quilt makers, as seamstresses, wow. and that I was bringing down the entire feminist art movement.
1: Wow! So you see, and <laughs> I felt like at Howard, well, there were no fiber arts. I, and I felt are there, like that's is what there what now? You're saying. No. Oh. But I don't know if they're against it. I think what you're saying, like fit for Black Americans at the time when the school was founded, it was like we don't want to do what the slaves did. Right. So we don't want to do any of those old time Negro arts like quilting, right. sewing, basket weaving. Um. I don't know, but any craft, a uh, woman's craft or a Black-only craft, because they wanted to be like the European standard of art, and uh, at the Sorbonne, all these French art schools. So that was out. I actually didn't start quilting until I went to Montclair State College, which is was a local school here, and I decided I was going to get my master's in teaching. And they, their art program had a strong uh, feminist curriculum. They were about three or four um, very well-known white women artists who founded the fibers curriculum, and they had a strong um, feminist push that every art student had to take fiber arts. So even though I was in art education, I took that fiber arts class where we were weaving, felting, crocheting, surface design on fabric, and we quilted. And that's when I made my first quilt. Wow. So if it wasn't for that class, I would have somehow maybe still been on canvas. Huh.
0: Well, so when you were when you graduated and you were done, like you didn't care what they said about your work, were you happy with your work? Like were you loving gluing and like getting fabric onto your canvases or were you feeling like you weren't quite there yet still?
1: I did like what I was doing, but being that I was pregnant, the smell of the paint oh yeah and the thinners made me so nauseous that I and then that whole experience I was like I don't care if I ever paint again yeah I still didn't think about art without paint though so I was like well I'm never painting it makes me sick and then after I had my daughter I couldn't have paint around because she would you know they eat everything they eat everything (laughs) and I didn't have like a nanny or help like that I was 20 years old with this little baby girl So I put all things away, you know, baby proof the home. And that meant all of my painting things were away, which, which suited me fine. And I was sewing again, making clothes for her and little matching dresses for me and her. And (laughs) so thank God for that. um, The quilting class that I took. Yeah, How long was the
0: gap between, between um, your daughter being born and doing your master's?
1: It was about five years. Yeah. So when she yeah, started school. Was, she was in school. Um, and it was 90, it was 2000. Okay. It, was. it was 2000. And I decided that I, I would teach and I could do that. I could be around children, which I love. Um, I could do art, which I love. And the, the hours suited a working mom. Mm-hmm. Um, my husband's hours were like, he was doing shift work at the time. So it was all kinds of stuff. So I couldn't really count on him for babysitting right? because he was, he was the primary breadwinner breadwinner. Um, so yeah, it was five years between that time.
0: Mm-hmm. And so when you go there to do your math, you're doing arts education, but you do this fireburst class, did it kind of ignite everything right then? Or was it a slow burn? getting into quilting. And so,
1: um, until I think at first it was slow, like we did like felting and I was like, Ooh, I like this, but I had immediately felt very comfortable in the fiber studio. Mm -hmm. It was all women. Um, I was still the only black student, but I was made to feel like I was a part of this community and not like this aberrant extra, like, what are you? um i remember i like the yarns and the colors and when we were dying fabrics to her, we did that too with we dyed things with um we had one project where we went outside and we got like onion peels we had to find natural things and then cool. dye fabric with that and then actually using like chemical dyes and seeing the difference but when we did that quilt <laughs> it was small it was like an oven mitt and she said um you could do a landscape a still life or a portrait. Oh boy. So I did a little still life and I was like, okay, so I can make images. And then I did a portrait of my father's father, my grandfather, who I never saw, but, and no photos. I did an imagined portrait of him using my father's dashikis from the sixties. Oh my God. And I wasn't using his dashikis thinking, I'm infusing this with my own personal heritage and his DNA. I was thinking, I can't afford a bunch of African fabric <laughs> <laughs> and he has it right here. <laughs> so I cut those up and I made this portrait and I knew when I looked at it, everybody knew in the class, the professor, but just kind of like a silence when I unveiled it. Cause we were all like, including me was like, oh, this is something different now. I finally hit it. Yeah. Finally. Isn't that an I amazing saw this, feeling? I saw this face looking back at me and I showed it to my father and it was like this grandfather who had died of appendicitis in 1940s. And he, when he died, my father was orphaned. The family was destroyed. So it was like, he's back. and not only is he back like he was bringing me what i needed as an artist that
0: just gave me chills that's so amazing so was that small too was that like oven mid size too? that portrait Yeah, bit bigger it
1: was like it was about eight and a half by 11. okay
0: and so at what point in your masters was that was that heading towards the end or was that the beginning
1: it was sort of midway yeah no, no. Um, I mean, midway through the class, oh, but okay. no, the ma- the master's program was almost over. Oh, okay. I think I, I took that class my last semester. And then the final project, I did a portrait of my grandmother and my grandfather. They had taken like a little photo booth shot oh. in, in New Orleans in the thirties. And so I made that like bigger, maybe it was like poster size of the two of them. And that's actually up. Well, it's going to be up November 16th at the Art Institute of Chicago. I have an exhibit of like 25 pieces, but that piece from 2001 at the time is in the show.
0: Wow. Oh my God. How cool. Yeah. Retrospective while you're still alive. Love it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. How do you feel looking back at like, has your technique changed drastically since then or no? Like, are you still doing it the
1: same way? I feel like I'm still doing it the same way. It just looks a lot better. Yeah. <laughs> <You're just getting laughs> it's um, like your handwriting. From, yes. You know, from when you're 10 to now. Yeah. Although well, mine's probably well, worse no. now. <laughs> I was about to say, we don't write that much now, like write with pen. So my handwriting is not that good. But anyway, it's the same technique. It's just better.
0: Yeah, it's just refined. And so, okay, yeah. so you, you finished your master's and you started teaching.
1: Yeah. In What
0: where, where were you, was at high school?
1: High school, I taught art in Newark Public Schools, which is an inner city schools uh, for 10 years. And at that, I was at a small school called American History High. And I think, uh, how many students did we have? Something like 200. Wow. So really small, like the senior class was like 50 kids. Um, and we had a very like close relationship. And I think like that's where I got my like, real teaching chops like it's one thing if you know how to make art but teaching somebody else to make your art and then teach somebody else who doesn't want to learn (laughs) what you're doing (laughs) and thinks that you're lame and is not (laughs) interested now try that and have 30 of them so all praises to teachers but my kids I call them my kids because they really I saw that all children are the same all of them rich kids poor kids black kids white kids it's they want to learn and when you when they're disengaged then they act up the 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 acting up in class a lot of times it stems from something else like my students if they didn't get breakfast if if the lights were off in the home and like one girl told me she had to hurry up and do her homework before the sun went down because it was dark um or one kid he was a foster student and he wasn't getting along with his foster parents and he was sleeping on the front steps of the school before school opened so school opened they had it was a free they got free breakfast at school so I think they opened the doors at like six thirty. so at what time did he get there and it wasn't warm and I thought like you can't say like that these black kids don't want to learn he did want to learn. He would come and eat his breakfast and then come and work quietly drawing until the bell rang in the morning. And I have like countless students like that. I mean, the ones with the most issues in class is because the issues were at home. So if you don't address like, if you don't address the social ills, you can't be like, these kids don't want to learn. Like that's not it at all. And then I went to work at my old high school like we talked about in the Mm -hmm. beginning. The, my last three years of teaching I worked at in back in the suburbs in Maplewood and um just, the school kids were just the same. Now my students one one girl she went to Iceland for Thanksgiving break and then they would go to pa- Paris, you know, like going to Paris. It wasn't like everyday thing, but it was Paris in the springtime, you know, like you might go to Mexico with your friends, but the kids had a lot more exposure to art and culture and their parents worked in very interesting industries and they were doctors and some of them were multimillionaires. but they still were still the same kids yeah they still wanted to be engaged they still want a teacher to care about them and talk to them um they still had the same issues not confa- compounded by money but some of them still, you know, some kids were transitioning, like it just, I yeah. learned like how to be a better human by being a teacher.
0: Yeah. That is so, um, t- I bow down to teachers. I, I taught one semester at a university and I was like, that was the hardest job I've ever had in my life.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: You know, yeah. and, and I thought, oh, university they're, they're They've paid money. Like they're there to learn. Nope. was yeah. one dude that slept in the back all the time, you know, and it was just like, I had a friend that was teaching in another art school and she said, if there's 20 kids in the class, teach the three that want to learn, just teach those yeah. three. And so I was like, okay. And I just taught those three and then all the other ones were like, Hey, like exactly what you said. They want,
1: they wanted to learn too. Yeah. And so they were like, Hey, yeah. hey.
0: you know, suddenly they weren't napping right. in the back anymore. And then we had right. this amazing, really engaged class, but yeah, it was all of my high school teachers are um, all of my high school friends are teachers. I always joke that wow. I didn't get the memo that, that we were all supposed yeah. to do. And I just bow down to them all the time because it is, yeah. you put so much of your heart and soul, not into just the curriculum, but into knowing them and into, right. you know, and given the amazing experiences you had with teachers, I'm sure you wanted to be that for them.
1: Sure. You know, I thought about that all the time. Like it's more than you can teach someone, but if they don't want to, or they can't for some reason, like the social aspect of it, of knowing your student, like you said, that's everything. Yeah. Like if it means you so said,
0: much to them, even if they don't end up becoming artists or whatever, the fact that you saw them. Yeah. That's what matters.
1: Even a simple thing like calling a child by their correct name, you know, with the pronunciation. If somebody calls you, like my full name is Melissa, but my nickname is Bisa. But if my teachers call me Melissa, it's a disconnect from the start. Right. Because you don't know me. You don't know my name. Yeah. So now that's how kids are like, eh, whatever, like you don't know me. Right. Because you didn't, you never tried. Especially when the kids are like saying that this is my name. And if the teacher has a bias against that child, like, oh, May Lisa, is it made up? Well, I don't like it. I don't like you. Like, and yeah. you, we carry those with us whether we want to or not. Or if a child, like I said, if a child is transitioning and they say, like, you know, call me, I don't know, but call me Lori. But that's not the name that's on my roster. Um what difference? Like, I don't know, but there were just some teachers that were really animosity, like they would cause a problem by saying like, no, like it says right here, the name is John. And that's what I'm calling you. I'm like, why are you doing this to this child? Would you want somebody to do that to your child or any person? So yeah, it's very easy. You can set off a class in a bad direction just by calling the role incorrectly. Yeah. The class just started and now you've alienated. You yeah. Alienated and insulted and hurt the feelings of certain kids in class and you're not gonna get them back that class period. You might get them back the next one or you might not. Because if you call that role the same way yeah. again, it's just like you're done for. Yeah. Um,
0: so you taught for ten years. Are you teaching anymore or now you're way, way, way too busy taking over the art world?
1: Too busy, so busy. <laughs> you know, I hope it's taken over the art world, but I work all the time. Yeah. Um, I've been working independently now for the last three years and I work right in my dining room and I love that. I love being able to come downstairs and just spend the whole day on myself. Um, my daughters are home because of the quarantine. Um, I asked them, they were both in New York. Um, one works for Goldman Sachs and the other goes to pratt institute
0: wow. and so
1: the one who works at goldman she can work from home and her lease was up in may so i was like please come home like i just in march i was like i asked both of them and then pratt institute they closed yeah at, at the time and so the youngest she's been home too and um i like having them here you know at the age that they are now they're more help to me for everything yeah like they help they help set me up with my, my iPad and my headphones. They just, they cook food for me. Like they, they're they completely on board and supportive. And my husband is always like behind the scenes doing something.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't believe you work in your, because your pieces are gigantic.
1: Well, I have, when I'm talking to you now, I have a machine a sewing machine that's set up so that if you can imagine, you know, you set your sewing machine on a table. Well, imagine if your fabric was somehow adhered to the table and you could move the machine around with wheels. What? So so that's how I sew. My machine is on the, it's called the long arm sewing machine. The fabric is stable. You don't, you know, when you sew, old, yeah. the regular yeah, yeah. way you sew, like you push your fabric through. No, the machine just rolls around on top of the fabric. So it's really like- Oh my God, when did you figure that, that out? Well, the quilters, I went to a quilt festival. Actually, my father insisted. He was like, you're going to be a full-time artist. You need to have the tools of the trade. And we went to a quilt festival in PA because there's a lot of Amish in Pennsylvania. Yes, yeah. And these women were buying these huge sewing machines they cost as much as a car. They're like thirty thousand, forty thousand dollars. And you get financed and everything. And oh my god. My dad was like, You need one of those machines. <laughs> Who that knew? Was just last year. Yeah.
0: And so I guess in a way, did you have to kind of reteach yourself how to do what you'd been doing?
1: Yeah. Because it's one thing to sew like this, but this is like your arms. So <laughs> Do you Keeping have awesome biceps better. now? I wish I did, but no. <laughs> I wish that was enough, right? That yeah. Just be, you'd be like, wow, look at her arms. No, I don't have Michelle Obama arms at all. But <laughs> Damn, that would have been such a like
0: great side benefit, you know?
1: Right. Wouldn't it be this awesome benefit? No. And sewing, and actually it's me, the piecing that takes so long. Yeah, I just finished a piece that I've been working on for seven months. I saw that on Instagram. It took me 2,500 hours to finish it. I calculated. And a lot of that was sitting, which is really unhealthy. So we got the, like, I don't want to give, actually I'm not going to endorse any certain electronic bikes that are popular right now, <laughs> <laughs> but I have one of those bikes. And, um, that's what I have to do every day because it's too much sitting.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah, that is. And it's so, Um. Y- do you have to wear glasses yet? <laughs> that's like a lot of concentrated looking.
1: It is. I just now, that's funny. I went to the eye doctor two days ago because I found myself like squinting and my father gave me some of his readers, but they were giving me a headache. I felt like they were too much. Yeah. So The eye doctor said exactly what I thought. She was like, your eyes are starting to show that the optic nerve is getting weaker with age, like with closing. So she said I could get really light reading glasses or not. I'll have to, she said I should get them. And then, you know, if it starts to give me a headache, take them off because I'm like right at that transitionary period that I need them. But yeah i don't know i have to adjust to wearing them
0: that happened to me right around 40 and suddenly i was like trying to i cut out really tiny things for my collages and i just couldn't i couldn't see what i was trying to do and i cut a little guy's head off by accident and i'm like oh damn Oh no! and when you're cutting out of books it's like you've got one shot
1: oh my god yeah so i
0: ended up getting um glasses and now i just wear them you know 24/7 but it it really mm-hmm. helped and i whenever i look at really detailed work i mm-hmm. always get a headache thinking oh that poor poor person how do they do that and your work is so detailed so part yeah. of the time that must go in is just choosing all the colors and all the types of fabric and how yeah. long do you play because it's like a collage like before you glue mm-hmm. you know like so how mm-hmm. long do you play around with all those bits before you actually start sewing
1: that's the thing that takes so long Yeah, cuz i'm looking at a vintage photograph and I make a sketch and that sketch becomes my pattern mm-hmm. so most of my shapes are mapped out for the most part like the grand shapes yeah. if I'm doing a face like the head the nose the eyes the lips but the planes of the face that whole like I'm working on a piece right now and it's just really long because I'm constantly like standing back and thinking about it you know auditioning different colors next to the colors that I've always chose and each color plays off of another color yeah it's like pointillism like it changes yeah 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 Wow, that's the part that takes a long sewing I did I worked on this piece for seven months and I did the sewing and I think was it like seven days or eight days oh my gosh the sewing is like nothing for me Yeah, that totally makes sense.
0: That totally makes sense because it's all those, the picking is, and people don't realize how long that kind of thing takes because you're right. You put another piece of fabric down. If it doesn't work beside it or it shifts the color or whatever, or it's too drastic, you've got to go and find that other. So what does your collection of fabric look like? What, how much must you have in your house? I. This is why you need to
1: move, isn't it? yeah yeah oh, Yeah. The ba- I didn't even mention a basement like <laughs> I have 22 bins like plastic bins of fabric in the basement and they're that's all color-coded the no <laughs> I just I, it's I have them in there by like textures like okay. I'll have like gabardine all in one and um tool all in another and okay um African cotton but then it'll be from different eras because I have the vintage cotton from my mother that's in one like so I have like my own system but it's not labeled or anything like (laughs) that anybody else would consider organized (laughs) that's fine as long as it works in
0: your brain that's all that matters
1: Yeah, yeah yeah but I have like a bunch of my favorite bins which is I think about 15 in the dining room so those are the ones that I use most often
0: you sometimes forget what's down in the basement Is it like a bit of a treasure hunt every now and then? If you're like, oh, look. Yeah.
1: Yes. Yeah. I'll remember they're there, but finding it, that's the problem. Yeah. Like, I'll be like, where is that bin a tool? Like, where is it? And they're like stacked. And they're clear bins, but still, it's just like, yeah, I need to do much better.
0: And then, so are you, um, you can admit it. Are you a bit of a hoarder? Like, when you're out and you, like... Walk past a thrift shop. Like, are you going in yeah. there looking for fabric or like, where do you yeah. get your fabric now? Or do you even need to look for it? Cause you've already got 35 bins going.
1: I mostly buy fabric online okay, because I'm, I'm getting it shipped directly from the manufacturer. Okay. Um, the oldest African uh, Dutch wax, like this is what I'm wearing, Dutch wax fabric. They're still printed in Holland. Oh. And so I have a connection to this company, Vlisco. I think they opened in 1840. And so they have the plates from the original designs. And I like that because my pieces, will be historic. So I did like a soldier from World War II. I can use prints that like original prints from like, I think I had one from 1920, wow. but they reprinted on new cotton. Yeah. But I like using that fabric because then it speaks to the story that I'm trying to tell. Yeah, Like I have found I bought this book and it it just basically goes over like the history of Dutch wax cotton. And when it came to Africa, it's Indian cotton with um, Holland designers printing it, but marketed to Africa. So we all look at the fabric. You're like, Oh, that's African fabric, but it really is a more international cloth than we realize. And there was this one particular print that I just had to have. It's called devaluation, and I love that when it's printed at the factory, it just has a factory number. Like this is not this is fabric 5400. When it gets to the marketplace in Togo and the Cote d'Ivoire, and the women are haggling and buying, they name them what they see in it. So, like for instance, devaluation. What happened was the French had pulled out of Africa, or they were kicked out, you know, the colonies, depending on the country, mm-hmm. you know, but the, com- the countries won their independence. And so their, their money was the French franc. And then France said, or International Bank of France said, we're not going to back your money anymore. Like You don't want us, so we're not right. going to do that. So the African francs were devalued by like I think it's like one us dollar equals like a thousand wow a thousand Togolese dollars so this fabric was printed with money on it and the african women looked at that and they called it devaluation and not only did it represent the financial status but they said they also felt devalued as people wow so i was like oh i gotta get some devaluation so i just got some of that yesterday oh my gosh
0: so cool Yeah, it's so neat because it's exactly what you said about doing that piece of your imaginary grandfather (laughs) portrait, right? Where it's like, at the time you weren't infusing the DNA, you were using fabric that you didn't have to pay for (laughs) as art school. But um, I love that. I mean, there's already so much richness to your work, but then to have the fabrics actually have stories too. It's just like adds those layers that you were looking for in your BFA that you couldn't find.
1: Right. Right. Exactly. Like we all need that help. So if I can have a piece of artwork out there and have people be able to recognize the symbols on it, to know that those symbols mean something. So when African women who, or not just women, but mostly women come through and come to my exhibit, especially like I had an exhibit in London. So they have a very, you know, the London crowd, they have a lot of African immigrants. Mm -hmm. Um, They're looking at my fabric and they know that fabric. They'll be like, oh, devaluation. Wow. I I understand what she's saying with this piece. So the language is stronger.
0: Yeah, that's that's exactly what Howard told you to do. Yeah. You know, that's exactly right. Like put those stories you know into the, into the world um right. so you are on fire right now are Thank you, you. <laughs> tell me all the things because i can't keep track i was like going to write down all your shows but it feels like there's like constantly like you're constantly doing something working towards things showing here showing there so what's what's going on
1: so i have a show that just closed at the katona museum that's in upstate new york And that's my first museum show I've ever had, like solo Mm -hmm. museum show. I've been a part of group shows. And then that show is now going to the Art Institute of Chicago, November 16th. So we're all like, the work just arrived. I think the curator told me like the work just arrived. And it's just such a relief for me. The big piece that I finished the shippers came a few days ago and oh, took it. God. And I was like so happy to see it go, you know, because it means that I'm done with it. Like, let's like, yeah. go. Yeah. You've been released into the world. Ago. That's why
0: we're talking now and not two <laughs> weeks ago when I when I tried to set this call up. You're like, no.
1: Right. Oh my gosh. <laughs> two weeks ago, I was just in the zone and in the tunnel or however you want to call it. Like I couldn't see anything but sewing. Yeah. Because I knew I was like in the final stretch.
0: Oh my gosh. So when you're working on a big piece like that, that's all you're doing. Like you don't have other pieces that are like underway or like, do you have like things in other States or you're just working on that one?
1: That a piece like that was so all encompassing. Um, I could not like even conceive of doing something else at the same time, Yeah, but, and there were seven figures in the piece. So um, I just started a single figure now. So when I'm doing one, I might do like three at a time. Oh, okay. And like kind of like shuttle Move around. Back and because, forth. Yeah. Right, but it's three singles separate. So they're not they don't need to vibe off of each other. Yeah. But doing that other piece where all seven people needed to work together, I couldn't just my brain couldn't like take the shift to go to another piece.
0: Yeah. Fair yes. enough. Yeah, that's yes. insane. And when yes. I, I'm kind of going in reverse here because I was going to wrap things up, but I have another question. Sure. Um, sure. When did you start getting so big? Like, when did the scale start? Did it just slowly happen over time or were you like, I'm going big today?
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly what you said. I was working still, I was teaching. It was my last year of teaching and I was newly signed to the Claire Oliver Gallery and Claire was like, Oh I'm gonna I wanna bring you to where were we going? Art Basel, mm-hmm. Miami. And I was like, okay, well What so what year was I, this then? I do? Um twenty eighteen. Okay. I got signed in twenty seventeen but Art Basel it was December I think it was December twenty seventeen, actually. Okay. And it was about to be twenty eighteen. And I was like, I need to do something that really like commemorates that I'm I'm going to a bigger stage and I just thought, I want to go big. So I did my first like life-size piece of these five boys on a car in Chicago. And so it's a famous black and white photo taken by Russell Lee. And I was like, I want to do my version of this. And that was so much fun that I kind of just stayed there. I was like, I think life-size really works for me. And then I stopped teaching. And so I was like, I have all day. Like, I don't have to rush through this. I don't have lesson plans to do. Like before it was always like, I'll work till 5 p.m. Then I got to do my lesson plans. And then I got to get the kids ready for school tomorrow. And then this time it was like, what do you want to do? do? Wow. Your thing.
0: That's so exciting. And, and life size is so powerful too, because um, do you always, is their gaze always forward everything that you do?
1: Mostly. I like having that connection. And I think for me too, it started with that photo of my grandfather. Yeah. Um, I want, it's like, it it comes from longing kind of and loss for people who have gone. Mm. So even though the people who I portray are not all my family members, I'm equating them with people who I know and who I wish were still here. Mm -hmm. And I like that feeling like they're back. So that's why they're life-size, because if they're small, then they're not actually back. It's just like Yeah, it's like looking at a photo. There.
0: You want, yeah, you want them to yeah. be there. Oh, that's really yeah. beautiful. Yeah. And I know that, um, like, you have, like, recreating that photo, but a lot of the times, like, especially lately, your work has been sort of anonymous um, people, right? Can you talk about that? Because I think it's such a, a beautiful idea.
1: Well, there's just so many photos taken of black people online that are just floating in the in databases and the labels on them are like, you know, negro washerwoman or negro school children, um negro farmhand. And these I feel like once again like something was just taken from them. You know, their photos were taken um on standard cameras. So contact sheets were made or not some of them remain in slides but because of the digital era they can upload slides into these databases so they were never printed and the people did not get the photo the families didn't see the photo the children didn't see their photo their living ancestors don't even know the photos exist so i felt like this obligation again i guess that goes back to howard like i owe them better than to just I've passed the photo now, I've seen it, I like it. So the least I could do was try to do right by them. Even though they're no longer here, I believe like in the spiritual sense of people that they're looking on. Mm -hmm. So anytime I look at their photos, if their hat is ragged, I mean, it's not like they were asked to sit for a photo that day. They were out working or they were downtown or they were sitting by a bus stop. So if the shoes have holes in them, and a pants raggedy, I fix that, and I give them like like what I think they would want. It's almost like a conversation, especially with the kids. There was a little boy in one of my photos. He's barefoot. He had on his overalls, and they were kind of run down. Um, one button was there, and the other was torn, but he had t- tied it on. He had on a little hat, so like he's still trying to look his best even though he can't even afford a pair of shoes. And I thought about what would this little boy want? So I made him a little pair of Converse. Like I looked at like Converse in the 40s because I wanted to see like how different, they basically look the same. And then his clothing, I used like African print to give him the legacy of his ancestors. He's here and he's dirt poor in the South, but that's not where he came from. Like he was stolen from the legacy that he should have. Mm
0: -hmm. And then
1: the fabric that I used, I kept in mind that this is a conversation with a little boy and it's the forties, it's World War II. So I put like airplanes on his pants (sighs) because he would have seen, I put horses, I put like a little motorcycle guy on his pocket because what does he want? He's like, he's eight years old. What would he want?
0: That that must come from your teaching too. It's all, almost exactly what you said about saying the right name on the roll call, right? It's like respecting yeah. that little person as a person, not just as a, oh, they're a kid, they don't matter. It's like, he's right. a person, let's give him what would have made him feel proud and good.
1: Yeah, yeah I think about that. How would he feel if I actually asked him, how do you want to look? I know he's not like, yeah, just leave me raggedy. Like No, that's yeah. not how anybody wants to be presented. So beautiful.
0: So, um, okay. Now what are you working on now? Or are you taking, are you going to like chill out for a little bit?
1: No, no time to chill (laughs) right now. I've already started a new collection, but something new that I'm doing is I'm sort of going back to doing people who are alive or recently alive. Not just I think before for the last like five years, I haven't done any photo that was taken before nineteen fifty mm-hmm. uh, so, my new collection, I'm sort of infusing some of the things that have happened recently um with the with the fight for social justice and uh the black uprising. I don't know what what are we even calling it, but things that have affected us now, coronavirus. I'm taking some contemporary images and putting them in my work. And um, my new collection will debut. There's going to be another museum tour. And it's really exciting, really big, but I'm not even allowed to say yet. But. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I won't but force you. <laughs> um, well, Claire Oliver, I just love her. We've actually never met, but we started messaging um, a few months ago, like somewhere during quarantine, and she said, would you ever come and curate a show here? And I was like, hell yes, I will. So, um, but I want to wait until I can actually come. Yeah. I I can't even, I'm not even allowed to go to the States right now. Like borders are so close. So I'm like, I, if I'm going to come and do that, like, I want to be able to go, like, are you going to be able to go to
1: Chicago for? Well, we're doing our very first flight.
0: Um, okay. since
1: this all has begun. Yeah, every state is different, yeah. but New York and New Jersey got hit so hard in the beginning. Um, I don't know how we got control of it because I have had some dear friends who passed away, but oh the numbers are so low now that we're one of the few states that can travel to other places without okay. being under the quarantine. So yes, we're traveling. Um, we're going to be all masked up and face shields in place. So it's just a different yeah you know it's not not fun travel but it was either that or we were going to drive yeah so figured, you gotta go
0: you have to go to that
1: yeah and I assume yeah. you made
0: your own masks
1: I made a bunch of masks um but now they're so easy to buy like but in the yeah. beginning before when they weren't accessible me and my husband my husband started sewing too I got him in on it but we were both like just sewing constantly a mask like everybody in the family got a mask and People kept asking me, like, "Are you going to sell your mask?" And I was like, "No, yeah. <laughs> I'm not," because I I have enough to do, and I'm not yeah. going to spend my days making masks. Check like, uh, this out. <laughs> do you
0: know um, Natalie Baxter, that artist? She does um, the soft guns, like she does great big like um, rifles and machine guns, but they're out of like gold lamé and do. like yeah. She's in based yes. in Brooklyn. You guys yes. would be fast friends, <laughs> I'm sure, and. Um, <laughs> So she was making them um, at the beginning. And so I said, can I, can you send me one? So I have this great (laughs) Natalie Baxter mask with like um, leopard print on one side and hot pink on the other. I love it. Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. Very nice.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I should get
0: every artist that works with fabric to do like a show of 2020 masks. Oh, dear God. I mean. What a weird time.
1: I know. Why, I know. We time. won't forget it. We will sure. not.
0: And yeah, especially if you're incorporating it into your work, it's going to be yeah. in the archives.
1: Yeah. Um
0: okay, so let's quickly do the not so speedy speed round. And okay. um and then I will send you on your way because I've kept you for so long, but it's been I've been so excited <laughs> to talk to you that I was like <laughs> I'll lie and tell her that I'm keeping her <laughs> for 45 minutes but <laughs> I'm keeping her for <laughs> like. um, okay, first question, coffee or tea?
1: Tea, for sure. Tea. I haven't. My dad went to school in England, uh, oh. <laughs> in Ghana, and then in England for grad school. So we're like tea with cream and sugar, all of oh, that.
0: Very nice. God save the queen. <laughs> um, okay, follow up. <laughs> <laughs> follow up. Cake or pie?
1: Oh, that's a hard one. Can't have both?
0: Yeah, okay, you can have both.
1: <laughs> I just love all breads and pastries. It's, it's terrible. I don't think I could say no to either one. I know me either. I'm
0: doing a cleanse right now. I've really bad arthritis. And so gluten really um, hurts. And yeah. I had surgery this summer. And so I was feeling very sorry for myself. So I was eating a lot of gluten. Yeah. Because it makes you feel better. And then now I am in so much pain that when oh, I try no. and go to the studio, I can barely use my scissors and stuff. So I was oh, like, okay, yeah. I need to do like, I need to reset. So it's been 12 yeah. days of no
1: oh.
0: carbs or sugar
1: wow
0: that's why I wrote cake or pie and I was like I'm just gonna think about this question
1: (laughs) I love all cake I love pie I mean gosh
0: yeah I know I I I? love to
1: eat period my grandmother being from New Orleans like we just grew up on like really good gumbos and um pralines and then and then the Moroccan influence it was always like um chicken and olives and couscous like you know I just love to eat, though. I'm yeah, it sounds like food. a whole bunch of
0: deliciousness. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I'm really hungry right now, so I'm listening to all Sorry. You. Sorry. I'm going to go have an apple after this. That'll be great. Um, okay. This is a Grad 91 rules question. What did your high school grad dress look like?
1: Oh, speaking of when my mom and grandmother sewed, I picked out this dress. What brand was it? Was it was it Chloe? I was always on some extra, extra, but they always kept like the, it was them, they had the Vogue and they would have like French Marie Claire in the house, Elle Magazine. They always had it in the baskets. And I picked that, I think it was Chloe. It was a Chloe chiffon, like baby doll style dress with red chiffon. And my mother got the red chiffon and it had like a little bustier top. And then it had layers and layers of chiffon that ended at the knees. It was real fluffy. And she had to go to um, an Indian shop to get like this, the right chiffon, because we couldn't find it. And I was super picky because I wanted to be sheer, like the one in the picture. <laughs> and then it had a scalloped edge. And she had to get fishing wire and sew that into the edge so that it would curl properly by hand. Oh, I was awful, like was the youngest, and I knew it. And this was the dress I wanted. I remember my mom trying it on me, and I was like, "It's not, it's not right." I was looking at the picture, so my dress was really Diva. cute. It could still go for today. I can't fit it, but that dress was too cute.
0: <laughs> that is awesome. Uh, I had my neighbor made mine. It was um, there were ruffles. There was definitely, yeah. it was 91. You had to have some, some ruffles on the sleeves, a little sweetheart neck. It was sort of a, yes. like a, a cranberry color.
1: Oh, But I had okay. yet to blossom.
0: I had not blossomed yet. So this yeah. poor lady is trying to make this like top that technically yeah. there should be boobs in. And she was like, <laughs> interesting. How are we going to fill this with something?
1: Did she put like a ruffle to? no, no, there was no help oh, It was a sweetheart. it was a yeah. sweetheart. <laughs> yeah, there was a sweetheart Uh-oh. with nothing in it. Well, was it boning? Yes, to keep it out so she oh, was okay, like, let's try know. and fake it
0: with some boning so anyway, <laughs> and then it had it was mermaid and it had ruffles around the bottom.
1: oh wow, yeah, I had a very
0: um I looked like Molly Ringwald in sixteen candles in high school. Oh, I had like I a perm it. in a bob. I was trying yes. to like yeah, I was trying to harness love <laughs>
1: Yeah. I mean, didn't we all want to look like Molly Ringwald? Like, (laughs) even though I looked nothing like Molly Ringwald, like, I would put the lace bow and kind of get the flop effect. Like, well, she was in every
0: single movie. So, what do you, you know, you kind of have to. Okay. And final question due to quarantining and whatnot, if you could go anywhere in the world right now, where would you go?
1: Hmm. Chicago? (laughs) Oh, my gosh anywhere well i guess since freeze week just passed and i really wanted to go last year i participated in art fair one 154 at somerset house in london and we just had such a good time and then we took like a day and went to paris but we were like we'll come back next year you know yeah i think if i could go anywhere i would have gone to um 154 fair and like actually exhibited that would have been fun yeah even though it's cool and rainy.
0: yeah I I just keep thinking like all of those 1918 people you know you see the the photos of them wearing their masks and then there was a hundred years of no masks and free travel and whatever so it's like okay this too shall pass like there will be a day where You know, so I'm like, okay, we will go to Paris again. We will go to yeah. all the places again. I keep trying to tell myself that
1: it's true. Hopefully, we we'll I mean, meet up in
0: Venice in 22.
1: Oh, to see Simone's work. Let's do that. We'll be there. Yeah, look, I don't know what's happening at by 2022. If I have a mask on, I don't care. But I'm going. Yeah, to Venice. That's it. I am not going to not celebrate the moment.
0: So. No, no, we have. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. Well,
0: this. That's all my questions. I probably could talk to you for five more hours. Um, Grad 91 <laughs> does in fact rule. Um, <laughs> yes, it does. I'm so happy that I know you outside of Instagram DMs now.
1: Me too. Thank yeah. you so much for taking the time. And it's so cool. Like, well, and it's good for me to get the name in the face with the person. Because I yeah. always just see like, it's a jealous creator. Yeah. Right?
0: curator yeah I
1: yeah, was, yeah. Cure, curator yeah I, knew I was saying something weird there yeah <laughs> but like that's what always pops in my head so I'm glad that now that I actually have
0: yeah no it's so here. nice like that's what I love about this podcast and I'm so glad that we kept the video on the whole time too and, and no glitches which is yeah. great but it's um yeah it yeah. feels like um a pretend coffee sorry tea date. Right. um <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but um well hopefully one day we'll actually meet in person. And until then I will um just watch what's happening on Instagram and good luck with Chicago and and uh thank you so you'll yeah, be much. watching from here.
1: All right. Thanks All right. So much, Danielle I'll talk have to you have a great soon. day. You too. All right. Bye.
0: Bye. Wasn't that amazing? From children of the rainbow and flirting with Tupac to sourcing fabric from specific time periods, bringing even more meaning to her stunning narratives. Oh, also, how amazing was that story about her English prof taking her over to the fine art department? Seriously, chills. I was already a fan of Bisa before this conversation. And now, well, I have officially reached super fangirl status. There should be a scratch and sniff sticker for reaching this level. Anywho, everything we talked about, images, shows, links, are over on my site right now, thegelscurator.com. So pop over there and take a look. Thanks so much to Bisa for making the time to share her stories with me. And good luck this weekend in Chicago. I will be watching on Instagram. And as always, thank all of you for showing up and listening once again. There will be more art for your ear next weekend. See you then!